Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined by Frank Cagliano, who is this time calling in from my hometown of New York City. How are things in New York, Frank? They are great, David. I'm in New York, New York. So nice they named it twice. And, uh, yes. <laughs> and it's your hometown. This is actually your hometown. We know yeah, yeah. listeners to this podcast will know you 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 claim you you have in fact you don't claim you have connections to numerous states. Uh, I've is, I've had a peripatetic life, yes. Yes, but, but I'm this from is, New York City. That, you know, I'm a, I am at, I am at, uh, yeah, I'm in, in David Silconet territory now. I, I'm you're, calling you're probably in, about a half mile from where I was born. So uh, I'm calling in from Manhattan. So it's exactly. great, great, and it's great to see you. Right. So uh, earlier this week, the Senate passed the Sunshine Protection Act, uh, so-called named because it's supposed to uh, move the United States into permanent daylight savings time. Um, this is. Um, bill that was passed at the behest of uh, Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. This comes two weeks after the United States, uh, everyone in the United States, or at least most people in the United States, shifted their clocks uh, for daylight savings. And so we thought this would be an interesting opportunity to talk about not only daylight savings and its kind of bizarre history, but uh, time more broadly and, and how Americans make sense of time and relate to time and try to commodify and control time, if one can do such a thing. Yes, before we do that, David, can I just make a quick reference to last week's episode on, on foreigners that Americans have, foreign leaders that Americans have embraced? Sure, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I, I, I should have done this at the outset because we had two suggestions, which I think are very good, which we, for folks we didn't discuss. So one of, one of my colleagues, Anna at, at, at Monticello, suggested Jacinda Arden. Um, oh. as a contemporary figure. And I think that is a very good suggestion. So we might have considered her. Um, and secondly, a longtime listener, John from Ireland, um, uh, who's a teacher, um, was a little surprised and rightly so that we didn't discuss Eamon de Valera, who, who again is an Irish leader, um, who we might have discussed. And I think both of those, obviously we were limited by time and everything else, but I think both of those are good suggestions. I and mean, I want to just thank Anna and John for, for their suggestions. But back and to time. The actual, that is, yeah, the time is of the essence. So, yeah. so uh, Frank, what did time look like in the colonial era? You know, did, 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 are they worried about being late to things? Uh, you know, how did they relate to time? Um, uh, time is in, in, in most of the early modern period, uh, you know, time is the sun or the moon, you know, you look outside and you know what time it is. Um, I mean, I exaggerate for effect because, of course, there were timekeeping devices going back to ancient times. But um, for most of the colonial period, precision in time wasn't that important. Precision about the months, for example, and the seasons was very important, which is why almanacs are, are so vital. But but in terms of the time of the day, uh, that was less important than than it would become uh, in later periods, and for reasons which we'll be discussing over the course of the next few minutes. Uh, clocks weren't that you know clocks are expensive and complicated devices; they weren't necessarily that common. Uh, Either watches were very, very rare. Well, certainly there were no there were no wristwatches until really the, the 20th century. And even pocket watches, you know, are, are only become common in the 19th century. So time and precision about time was was less important than it would become, in large part because this was a 
um, largely rural and agricultural society. So while the seasons mattered and while weather mattered greatly, the, the, the specific time of the day didn't necessarily matter and could be measured by the sun. I mean, the great aphorism we get about time in this period is, is from Benjamin Franklin, you know, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. But early to rise just means getting up with the sun, which is, uh, or maybe getting up before the sun in the wintertime, which is what- um, Or at least getting up earlier than your neighbor. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, so I've been at Monticello, so I'll give you one Jefferson uh, anecdote, if you'll indulge we were me. Not, this episode would not be complete without a Jefferson <laughs> anecdote somewhere in the show. So, so All right, fair it. enough. <laughs> but I, I think this is relevant. Uh, visitors to Monticello um, will know that there's a, there's a famous uh, clock um, in the entrance hall of Monticello. And if, if you haven't visited, you can see this online and there's a, there's a short video at the Monticello website about this. And the gray clock is really, really interesting in a number of ways. It's got two faces on it. There's one face that faces outward to the grounds and the plantation at Monticello. And then there's an internal face to it that, that's um, internal to the, to, to the entrance hall. And those, those faces are not identical. The external face only has an hour hand. So it's got a single hand that marks the hours and the times between the hours. And I'm gesturing to David. Yes, he, he, David. Frank is very good at, at doing visual cues on a podcast. <laughs> We're five years into this, David, and I'm still <laughs> doing that. So, so, um, so, so it, it's got a it's got a single hand on the external face of the clock, whereas internally. It's got two hands. It's got an hour hand and a, and a minute hand. And then it's got an internal dial on the, on the face that, that, that is a second hand. And so it's much more complicated and precise internally than externally. And that's largely because it, the, the belief was, and Jefferson's belief was, enslaved people on the, on, on the plantation or um, white uh, free craftsmen who might be working on the plantation or overseers who were managing the labor of enslaved people didn't need to know the precise time. The, you know, the hour was good enough. Uh, whereas internally, the, the clock is quite modern. And this clock was, was built in the 1790s. It was, it was installed in 1804 and 1805. And it's been working ever since. It's still a functioning clock and it's still an accurate clock. It's a fascinating clock. It has a gong called the Chinese gong, which um, is, uh, came from China. And, 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 and the, the gong would, would sound every hour. Um, and interestingly, it's also called the seven day clock because it, again, internally inside the house, it marks the days of the week. So it's quite a sophisticated timekeeping device. And there are weights that look like cannonballs that had, so it had to be wound every week, once a week on Sunday. And so the week would start again. And it's got these weights that look like cannonballs attached to it that mark not only power of the clock, the weight of these, these, uh, again, I'm gesturing for David, uh, the, the weight, these weights descend and that, uh, and, and, and that powers the clock. But, but it, these weights also mark the days of the week. The problem being that the entrance hall isn't high enough for the weights to mark all seven days of the week. So they actually go through the floor of the entrance hall to the basement. So Saturday, the last day of the week before the things rewound is actually in the basement. So the marker for Saturday. But this clock, I think, shows us the attempt in this period. I mean, it's very much a product of the Enlightenment in this period of trying to, um, trying to impose uniformity onto the world. 
um, but also the, the the external nature of it, that it's only got the hour hand, but there's a recognition that time and labor are related, but they don't need to be that precise. Sorry, David, you no, I, ask I have some me. questions about this clock, both, both important ones and maybe superficial ones. One is, is, why did he need the day of the week? What Was he that hungover all the time from in, imbibing the French wines that he forgot what day it is? That seems a bit odd. Um, but, you know, I, I, Dave, David, do you have the, uh, well, you don't wear a watch, do you? Because you're a no, youngster. No, no, we don't wear watches. Well, no, no, people... no, speak for yourself. Speak for okay. yourself, because I do wear a watch. And when I wear a watch, I want the date and time on my watch dial, the okay. day and time, rather. Or, okay. sorry, the day and date. So I want the time, but also the day and date. And you'd be amazed how often you refer to that if you have it. So, so, okay. um, so, so I, I think... Uh, I've always noticed you don't wear a watch, and I, no, I, no, no, this is this is a generational difference between yes. you and me. But I think um, it's very convenient to have the day on on a on a watch. Okay, fair enough. All right, I'll I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, and when you reach my advanced age, David, you'll understand. You forget these. Okay, I understand. Okay, um, how much did this thing cost? This sounds like a very elaborate tool. I'm, Got to confess, I don't know that. I, I apologize. I should have no, looked that up. But it doesn't but it would, sound cheap. No, it wouldn't have been cheap. And he had it manufactured in Philadelphia by, by an, uh, a craftsman. And and no, it would not have been cheap. But we know that Jefferson spent a lot of money on things that he was interested in. <laughs> he was enthusiastic about. But I, I've got to apologize. I don't I don't oh, know. I, I, well, you know if, you, if you had an encyclopedic knowledge of, of how much everything in that house cost, then that would be brain space body. It is amazing that this thing is still working you know, um, more than two centuries later. But I mean, I think it, one of the, there's a couple of the, one of the final question I had was, was, you know, since they asked to reset it every week. Yes. How, how do they reset it? How does he know what the time is? That's an excellent question. Because I think one of the things that that's true about time in the pre-modern period is time is hyper-local. Right, That's that every, right, because you set it around the meridian of the sun. Done. So, so, so whenever, whenever noon, whenever sun's overhead, that's when noon is. Um, and, and so, you know, this idea that that time, and I think this will be important for our conversation, thinking about time zones and eventually daylight savings time. The idea that you and somebody in the next town over are going to be functioning at the exact same time or have the same calibrated sense of time is an idea that doesn't develop until the 19th century. That That's right. I assume, but I, again, I, I've got to confess, I don't know. You, you, you've, uh, like a good PhD viva, you're finding the gaps in my knowledge expertly, um, <laughs> that, that he probably, he, I say he, I don't know who's actually doing the winding. There, there was a ladder and a big thing to wind the clock with, a big key to wind it with, was wound at, you, I think the meridian of noon, you know, noon meridian uh, on a Sunday, but I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know that. Yeah, for but sure. Presumably that would, would have had also a sundial somewhere else in the grounds and be able well, to. And there are. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. But, um, um, but I think. And to so, sorry, to some extent, it doesn't matter. As long as you decide when noon, you know, to some yeah. extent, he's the master of his domain. Right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. He gets a big one. Yes, of he course. Can, he, he can decide when it's noon. Thomas Jefferson um, can do that. 
Um, but but that's an excellent question because we only get standardized time as you as we'll discuss and as you you alluded to in the 19th century and you know that's why Greenwich Mean Time will become important because you have to have you you, got, you need a universal standard eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the beginning, as far as he's concerned, you know Monticello is the center of the, of his universe, so the, the time is what he says it is. Yeah. So so if if he has a different time than at Monticello than what 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 his friend George has at Mount Vernon. That doesn't matter. No, because it's going to take you a day to get between the two of them anyway, yeah. or two days. So, to, you know, what difference does it make? So, I mean, I think that's one of the things about time that, that seems that, the, you know, for a modern audience seems very foreign. This idea that time is so hype, you know, it's not just time zones, but it's actually, you know, this very hyper local thing. Um, and that the sort of mechanized understanding of time. Um, was you know very limited to people who had lots of resources. So Thomas Jefferson had a lot of resources. He could show it off by having this fancy clock, but that most of his poorer neighbors would not have had any clocks. They would have, may have had a sundial if they needed control of time at all. But interesting, I, I agree with you completely. Interestingly, the gong, the so-called Chinese gong, can be heard for miles around. So, so, and that's tolling the at the top of the hour, um, which is an interesting dimension of this. And the other thing that interests me about this, and, I, and then we, is uh, particularly with, with reference to your century, uh, is that there is a sense of regulating the time for enslaved people who are working in some way. So, so there is an external dimension of this, and this is quite deliberate, even if it lacks the precision yeah. of um, the, the clock, the, the, the clock that's internal to the house. Well, it, it, now your your description there reminds me of a great book by by Mark Smith about the use of clocks on plantations because he makes the argument that the ability to read the clock and understand this clock was a, was a tool that enslavers kept to themselves, and so slaves wouldn't know what time it was, uh, and they used that as a kind of a, an instrument of control and used it in conjunction with things like bells. Uh, to, to, you know, regulate enslaved labor and use it as a sort of tool of, of domination along with other, all the other tools at their disposal. So, um, David, what happens in the 19th century? So we have all this hyper-local time, but make sense, make sense of it all. Yeah, how, the 19th so, century is chaotic when it comes to time. To be sure, yes. That's a, that, I think that's a good way of thinking about So a couple of technological things happen that, that change Americans' relationship with time. Um, the first, and, and New England is the center of, of, of much of this, uh, unsurprisingly. Of course. <laughs> um, so in not long after Jefferson gets his big fancy clock, uh, an inventor by the name of uh, Eli Terry in Connecticut in 1807 uh, invents what becomes a, an affordable clock for people to buy for their own homes. So you start increasingly having, and obviously in, uh, imitators and other inventors improve on this over the course of the 19th century, but clocks become much more common in homes and in workplaces. And so there's a democratization of, of at least of clocks, if not of time itself. And so people get greater access to, to regulate, thinking about time as being something that you could uh, you know, quantify in precise increments. Uh, this becomes important not only for people's homes, but it becomes important in workplaces. 
if you look, for instance, at, at the, the Lowell Textile Mills, which is one of the sort of early sites of, of mass employment in the United States, they you know, are obsessed with clocks and making sure that employees show up at certain times and work for a certain number of hours and minutes and take breaks of a certain amount of time. And so clocks become very much associated with, uh, you know, work isn't decided time determined by the sun or by, by how many hours of daylight you have, but by a machine that tells you when to start and stop work. Um, the other sort of tool that, that, that you know, uh, develops in the 19, later in the 19th century in the 1850s really is the pocket watch, the American Waltham Watch Company starting in the 1850s starts to produce moderately affordable pocket watches. So time becomes portable, so you can take it with you. So the watch you have on your wrist, but except it would have been in your pocket, uh, those become available in the mid 19th century. Yeah, I mean, just by way, uh, there's, there's a connection to tying together all these threads, David, which is that the antecedent to Timex, which is the great American maker of mass watches in the 20, 20th century, uh, and really still to the 21st century, and Timex memorably had that slogan, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking, so these were watches for, uh, for, for everybody. Uh, the, the, the that company was started as the Waterbury Clock Company in Connecticut, again in Connecticut in 1845. So it's right in this period, producing starts producing clocks, and then later will produce uh, pocket watches, and then of course in the 20th century, wristwatches as well. So oh, so um, yeah, the, the pocket watch really catches on, especially during the Civil War, uh, in part because it gets used for military purposes, thinking about how do you coordinate attacks across an army. The hundreds of thousands of soldiers knowing what time it is useful there. Synchronize your watches. Yes, otherwise you attack at the wrong time and bad things happen. Um, the big mover though for sort of standardizing time um, is the railroad because you know everybody, every town having their own special hyper-localized time is fine unless you have a train that's going between two towns that are different local times. Uh, and this is the idea of railroad time becomes very important in the mid 19th century. Uh, this is an idea that actually starts in England uh, in part because England sort of has a, a more robust uh, railway network in this point, but England up until the 1830s and 40s had very hyper localized times. And then people realize that's very dangerous when you're having big machines going at high speeds and try and make sure you don't miss your train. Britain, David, not England. Come on, you know better than that. It was an English railroad that <laughs> developed railway time first. Um, Scottish railways developed slightly later. Anyway, you're right. Fair point. Um, uh, however, but what's interesting is the coming together we see here. I mean, it's the reason Greenwich Mean Time will become the universal standard in 1883 hmm. is because this coming together of technology, but also industrialization and the desire to manage people's labor um, does start in Britain as the most advanced industrial country of the time. So it's it, it's not surprising. Yeah. We see parallel developments in the United States, but but uh, the United States lags behind in time terms, uh, Britain slightly in this. So what happens when this idea of railway time gets imported into the United States is that each railroad develops its own railway time, which means that when you had two different railroads have trains go into the same terminus. 
they would often like have the railway time be based on whatever the headquarters for the railroad was. Um, so there would be train stations with two different clocks and or sometimes three different clocks, depending on which company's trains you were trying to catch, uh, depending on what their version of time was that could be an hour off, it could be 15 minutes off, it could be seven minutes, you know, they'd each have their own special version of time, uh, which as you can imagine, caused all kinds of confusion and headaches and more than an occasional train crash when competing railway lines didn't calibrate their times uh, properly. Uh, the idea for standard time zones uh, often gets attributed to a guy named Charles Dowd, who was a college professor. He uh, publishes a pamphlet in 1870 called System for National Time for Railroads. This is actually at the same time thinking about other kinds of standardization. I think we've talked about this on the show previously. All the railroads in the United States used to have separate different railway gauges. So the distance between the rails was all different, which caused all kinds of chaos. And by the uh, you know, end of the 19th century, they sort of standardized the gauges. The same thing is happening with the railroads. Um, it takes a while though for that to happen. It's not until 1883 that you end up with, and this is mostly as a conjunction of railway companies coming together to sort of agree on a standard set of time. Uh, in which they come up with a set of, of time zones um, on Sunday, the 18th of November uh, in 1883, which some people call the day of two noons because in many places you had to recalibrate the clocks and so you had noon twice. Sad thing about Charles Dowd, um, maybe poetic, but mostly sad. Uh, he is killed by, can we hit by a train? Oh, he's laughing. <laughs> It's poetic, if nothing else. Um, so please tell me it's because he misread the timetable. Uh, it seems as if it was a blind railway turn and he was, oh, no. he was a pedestrian and, and he didn't see the train company coming. Um, maybe if he'd looked at the schedule, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, it, it's interesting that, that, that the forces, though, that are driving standardization of time are, are really, you know, corporate entities, you know, and, and I think this idea of, of, you know, what time the United States should have is, is and then we'll get to this with, with daylight savings, it is often driven around ideas about commerce and, and, and who will profit from time functioning in certain ways. Um, but even with that sort of level of standardization, lots of places don't buy into it um, most big cities buy into uh, this sort of standard set of time zones. But lots of local communities say, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to maintain our local time being what our local time has always been. Uh, so if you are in a town that has a railway, then you buy into the railway time. But if you're not, you know, there's lots of people who said, look, why should I, you know, uh, change the way that we do things just to conform to these uh, sort of systems that aren't, um, respecting us. David, have you seen High Noon? Long time ago, yes. The film, yep. Uh, it's a great movie, of course. And it's centered around, obviously, as the title suggests, time. Uh, but particularly, the, the clock is all important for this and the arrival of the train and the, and the climactic scene. And of course, um, 
that's problematic in the 19th century sense. And, you know, it's, it's a Western, so it's set in the mid-19th or the latter half of the 19th century for all the reasons you've said, particularly because uh, not everybody was necessarily on the same time. They were, of course, in the film, but in, in reality, well, they were not, is what you're selling us. Well, there were lots of sort of exceptions, you know, and, and different sort of local variations. I mean, um, some places, like Detroit's a good example. Detroit, because of where it is geographically, it's sort of halfway between the meridians of the Eastern and Central time zones. And so they weren't quite sure which time zone they wanted to be in. So Detroit at various points in time decides, no, we're gonna be in Eastern time, then they're gonna be in Central time. Then they decided to have their own special Detroit time for a while. And then they went back and forth between uh, the different time zones uh, before, before settling. Um, and I think this idea about sort of the local control of time being retained um, is something you see actually into the 20th century where some places, um, you know, for instance, have, don't have daylight savings time um, because they have chosen locally not, not to do that. Uh, but we really end up with sort of a, a standard sort of time system uh, at the end of the First World War with the Standard Time Act that the appropriately named uh, passed in 1918, uh, which does sort of formalize these time zones um, and sets up an early version of daylight savings, um, which is actually an idea that the United States stole from Germany uh, during World War I. And it was premised upon the idea that daylight savings would be um, a means of be energy efficient. It would be able to allow people to, to burn less fuel. Uh, and so this idea of conservation is sort of embedded within the daylight savings. So, so, so the reasoning, the, the basically daylight savings is putting the clock forward and you put it forward so that you get more daylight at the end of the day than at the beginning of the day. Yes. And That's right. this is what the United States has just done for this season, but uh, Britain hasn't yet done it. We'll get to the differences uh, in a minute. And so uh, the belief is, and there seems to be some data to su support this, that uh, if you do that, especially in an industrial economy, you use less energy. Uh, what's the downside to daylight savings then? Um, well, initially, the, the big opposition to it came from farmers who said, look, uh, if we're expected to get our goods to market at a certain time, this is going to mess with the cows. The cows don't, don't, you know, have clocks. They don't understand the clocks have changed. They're going to give us the milk when they give us the milk. Um, and so it's actually, you know, they, they pass this uh, as part of the sort of wartime effort. But as soon as the war is over, they repeal it. So the first version of daylight savings doesn't last very long, uh, largely because there's this rural opposition to it. So, so as in so many ways in the United States, there's kind of tension between uh, the, 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 a rural agricultural economy and an industrial manufacturing economy on this particular question. And what happens in the aftermath of the First World War is you end up with some local communities deciding to keep daylight savings and other ones not. So New York City keeps daylight savings, but the rest of New York State doesn't. Uh, so at some point you're driving through Westchester, you got to change your clocks um, because uh, they reintroduced daylight savings during the Second World War. Um, FDR calls it wartime, which again is designed, I think it's to be a, a effort to preserve 
uh, fuel in particular. Um, but that may also trash that at the end of the war, where it 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 uh, it, it is wasn't particularly popular, and they remove it in 1945. Then you end up with another period from 45 to 66, where you do have this sort of weird patchwork, where each state and community has their own sort of versions of of daylight savings or not. Uh, and then we get the sort of modern daylight savings time uh, introduced with the Uniform Time Act of 1966. So we've had it for uh, almost 60 years now. Right, and they've, uh, they've moved the dates slightly over the years about when, they, when the clocks go forward and back, but basically we've had a nationwide standard for when daylight savings time begins and ends across, I mean, the United States extends across nine time zones, but the contiguous United States are four main time zones. So the vast majority of the population live uh, in the, either of those four time zones. And with the exception of Arizona, um, which seems to have stayed out, and who else stayed out? Well, so basically uniformity. Yeah, and Hawaii. And American Samoa, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. And Arizona, it's all of Arizona except the Navajo Nation, which does do daylight savings. Right. Um, so this, as you point out, the system has been tweaked a bunch of times. There was an experiment in 1970, uh, I guess it's 73, 74, where they decide because of the OPEC oil embargo to go to permanent daylight savings as an experiment. Um, so this they do they did the thing that we that the Senate just passed. And that was a very intriguing experiment. I think people have put lots of people in looking at that in the past week because of, of this recent passage. Initially, it was very popular. There was a poll done in December of 1973 where 79% of Americans said, this is a great idea, having permanent daylight savings time, love it. As soon as they did it, it became very unpopular. Uh, and it became very unpopular because it meant that uh, depending on where you live, if you were a child, you were going, to, you know, getting up and going to school in the dark. Um, there were uh, news stories shortly after this was, was implemented about uh, traffic accidents where children were killed in Florida and other places. Um, and that was blamed on this uh, permanent daylight savings time. And so they actually um, ended this experiment of permanent daylight savings time early because it became, went from being very, very popular to very unpopular. Right, and since then we've had occasional moving around of the dates when it starts and ends, but we've been basically living with this current system until this decision. So let me, let me, um, let me ask you, is it, why did the Senate do this now? And and there seemed to be particularly crankiness. I mean, a, 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 sorry, a particular crankiness about the clock change this this spring in ways that I, you know, used to get a day or two of it um, on social media. But but there it, it did build momentum this year, at, so much so that the Senate, which can't agree on anything, unanimously agreed mm. to this. Uh, so so why well, did they do it, and how likely is it to become reality? So uh, what happened in the Senate seems to be um, a quirk. So they have this procedure where you can go approve things by unanimous consent. 
and uh, they usually use it for doing stupid things like renaming the post office and right. stuff that that are are uh, and Marco Rubio introduced this. And the procedure, at least in the Senate, seems to be that you're supposed to notify all your colleagues you're doing something like this, and they all say, right, good, fine. Um, but it appears as if the communications systems didn't work as well as they should have, because lots of senators appeared not to even know this thing was going through the Senate uh, when that happened. So there may have been some uh, slight shenanigans there. Um, the, you know, the, the fact that it's coming out of Florida, I think is interesting because Florida gets affected by daylight savings differently than more Northern states. And if you look actually the people who are supporting this, they seem to be predominantly from states that get a lot of sunshine already uh, because they see uh, the extension of daylight savings to permanent daylight savings as being good for their economy, especially good for things like golf, um, good for things like restaurants and shopping, um, and they're not as affected as much by the um, darkness in the morning. Uh, That's so right, all of the, all of, yeah, sorry, all of the places that don't currently participate in daylight savings time are very Southern and sunny. There are, they're, close, yeah. you know, they're closer to the equator than, than uh, most of the rest of the United well, States. You don't need it as much. Right, that's the point. And, and um, so Florida is yeah. a little strange in this because, uh, well, you have to say, okay, what's in it for them? And you follow the money. And so it's not, a, you know, given that the leisure industry is so important in Florida, it makes sense that Rubio would, would, would propose this, I think. Well, so, you know, one of the sort of tweaks they made a few years ago is they moved daylight savings, the, the end of daylight savings time in the fall from before Halloween to right after Halloween. And the Chamber of Commerce said that was responsible for millions and millions of dollars in additional cat candy sales. You know, and so the driving force was not because you have an extra hour of sunlight for trick or treating. And so people are going to buy more candy. And I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm calling BS on that. I, I can't believe um, that's how much more candy could Americans buy? Frank, you're, you're in America right now. You understand Americans can buy a lot of candy. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting to think about sort of the forces driving this, that they are um, very often about, you know, driven by, by economics. The Chamber of Commerce has, has been pushing for this. They think it's going to be good for certain kinds of businesses. The construction industry is against it because they think it's going to cause more injuries because of, you know, if they're, if they're starting work at eight o'clock in the morning and it's dark, it's going to cause more injuries. Schools and teachers are against it because it's going to, um, you know, students are not going to be wide awake when they're, you know, getting up in darkness to take the bus and they're starting classes in the dark. Um, and there's some safety issues involved. Uh, so, so the issues are, are in some ways more about economics than they are about Sort of time as an abstract concept, or, or about actually preserving daylight. Do you have strong feelings, Frank, one way or the other, about the shifting to permanent daylight savings time? Um, I've, I've got uh, David. I have several observations and opinions. One is, I think we ought to consider being on permanent regular time. 
<laughs> not daylight savings. I've heard time. several physicians uh, in the past week testify or argue that, that actually we should do that instead because that would actually be better for, for people's bodies in terms of, of their circadian rhythms and stuff. Yeah, people are objecting and they seem to be objecting to losing that hour's sleep in, in the spring, which I hasten to add, you get back in the autumn. So I'm not, I'm not sure people should be that agitated about it. Um, mm. But but I don't know why we wouldn't just stay on standard time if we're going to have, if we're not going to do this. I'm not sure that daylight savings time is is all that advantageous. I say this as somebody who comes from New England and lives in Scotland and spends a lot of time in Scotland. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm particularly... Um, <laughs> sensitive on this topic you're uh, used to the darkness yeah so so that that would be one observation uh the other thing is as somebody who for 30 years has lived in the US, uk but obviously has relatives and a frame and a close attachment to the united states particularly the east coast of the united states or the eastern part of the united states i'm mentally attuned to the five hour time difference between the us and uk and the couple of weeks a year, because the U.S. tends to change its clocks earlier uh, than the U.K. at both ends, or a bit later. Yeah. Anyway, there's usually about two weeks per year when it's a four-hour time difference, uh, or two or three weeks per year. I, When I'm in the U.K., I normally enjoy that. As somebody who follows U.S. sports, for example, it can be quite advantageous, especially on weekends. Uh now that I'm in the U.S., though, and ori still now you're oriented towards the U.K., so, so my orientation is going the other way, I'm finding this incredibly confusing and, and difficult where meetings are concerned. We messed up trying to schedule our time <laughs> for this podcast, which is quite telling because yes. we're a couple of, couple of idiots. Podcast is what we ought to call it. Um, so so, so uh, I, I've got the five-hour difference kind of fixed in my mind, and I think if it were a permanent four-hour difference, that would possibly call me, cause me a psychic shock. Uh, so I would say that. The other thing is, is I've got two, two further observations. One is, with respect to everybody whining about the change in clocks and how difficult it is, and I, I understand, especially if you have small children, that's no uh, small thing. I don't know why we have to do it you know, at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. I think if we're taking an hour away from people, they should do it at 11 o'clock on a Monday morning when everybody's at work and suddenly, you know, put the clocks forward an hour and you, the, the workday is close to the ending. You can keep the one in the fall at the regular time so you get an extra hour of sleep. But I think that would, I think everybody would be okay with that. And my final observation is with regard to, to this is I'm struck by one of the issues here that, that comes up that you mentioned, and this is a serious one, is um, how early uh, I'm struck by how early American kids start school. The school day starts mm. very early in the United States. I mean, th these, these times are kind of burned into my memory. So I remember exactly when I, my homeroom, you know, the, the, the start of the school day in, in high school homeroom for me started, I believe it was at seven twelve in the morning with the mm -hmm. first class about 20 minutes after that. Uh, once you did all, you know, had announcements and the pledge of allegiance and all that kind of stuff. We have lunch at 10.26 in the morning. There were two yeah. lunch periods, 10.26 and 11.17. And then the school day ended at 2.17 in the afternoon. So the American school day, and I, yeah, I know there are local variations to this, but in general, the American school day starts really, really early. And that has knock-on effects for parents and it has uh, and for you know, caregivers and everybody else. It means the work day starts early. I think we need to rethink that. So, 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 and this is irrespective uh, well, of the time question. So, so, anyway, yeah. those are my, those are my, well, I mean, that, that, that has to do with bus ultimately. 
Yeah, your 7 a.m. start day has to do, you know, the fact that they have to use the same buses for the high school kids and the middle school kids and the elementary school kids. Um, But everybody, so let those kids go later. Everybody could go later. Well, okay, but that means then the parents can't get to work until 11 in the morning. Not necessarily, especially now with remote working. I'm not sure about that. Let everybody go later. Let everybody work later and, you know, let, let work start later. Okay. Um, what know, are, what I, are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Uh, so, so I've I have a couple of I've, I've had a couple of crazy ideas about this. Um, one, uh, I there was an idea that came out in, in the sort of seventy three OPEC oil crisis, where where one of the proposals that the White House was entertaining was instead of having permanent daylight savings. One economist said, actually, what we should do is just have one time zone for the entire country. And, like just every, and, it's, and, and that way you don't have this confusion about what time your television program starts. Back when they had television programs that started at particular times, you know, and one sort of national unifying time. Um, that struck me as an interesting idea in terms of, of, especially if you're living near one of the the barriers for, for time zones, it can be very messy and confusing. Um, and, and, you know, uh, that could be uh, an interesting solution. Because uh, where you are east-west in, in a time zone can make a, a huge difference in terms of how, uh, you know, the relationship between, you know, the, the solar time and the, the clock time. Um, yeah, but David, if you and thought so we had a civil war before, imagine the civil war about deciding which time zone would be the one time zone for the country. Well, the, the other idea I had uh, that I saw people discuss recently, and I'm not sure this is, it would mess up Thomas Jefferson's clock, uh, but it would be fine otherwise, is that because, you know, one of the things that I used to hate about daylight savings times that have to go around the house and adjust all the clocks manually, but we don't I love to do that, that as I much. I love as, that. <laughs> no, because then you have to flash. It's always like half of them are wrong and, and stuff. And you don't remember how to reprogram the VCR back in the day. Um, is that now when, when so much of it's done digitally, is there an opportunity to have to return to a hyper-local time where you know, your, your phone and on your computer and everything else that has it in your watch knows where you are in time and space and can recalibrate itself. And they could calibrate airplanes and other kinds of things so that every place is in a local time zone uh, specific to that geographic location. Um, David, that already happens. I mean, uh, if you have a smartwatch and you fly, it recalculates the minute yes. you land, and, 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 and but you still need a universal but, point. You need universal. You need no, a but, point. No, but 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 you wouldn't end up with the situation where, um, you know, Edinburgh and Glasgow are on the same time. They could actually be at different times because they are in different points. Anyway. I saw somebody propose that as an alternative that would create more, more of a dynamic, egalitarian sense of time where, where there isn't a domination of a particular place on, on the map. Listeners, um, you can't uh, see the face I just made at David's suggestion, at that suggestion by David, but uh, you know, Frank trust doesn't me. like change or embrace Trust technology. me, I'm with He's you. Using it. <laughs> um, 
but uh, you know, one of the things though that that that, that all of these questions, you know, thinking back to to, to actually back to Jefferson's clock, is you know, do, does our obsession with time and the way we manage time, the way we split time into increasingly smaller bits, does that make our lives better or worse? You know, and I think about the ways in which time is being is used to to control and manage people rather than benefiting people. Um, you know, do, do, does these control you know manipulations of the clock and daylight savings and what have you? Does it make most Americans or most people around the world does it make their lives better or does it allow you know people who control the time to to extract value out of people? Um, and I'm not sure I have a good answer to that, but I'm, I'm leaning towards the sort of latter vision of, of what, how time is used. Um, that time is a, a unit of control as, as much as it is a, a, a liberating uh, quantity to have. It's a good question. And I think it is a tool of control, but by the same token, um, you know, you wouldn't want air to take the 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 railroad example you gave earlier. Let's suppose all airlines had their own time. You know, yes. they're the oh, equivalent sure. of, of railroads today. That wouldn't work out very well. And no, we no, need, no. There, there would be all kinds of problems. And we um, need precision when it comes to measuring time for medical procedures. And no, there, no, there, there are all no, kinds you, of benefits. You, you of are, time. You're you're right about that. Um, I mean, I guess the, you know it's unclear whether this particular bill uh, that got passed by the Senate using this sort of weird um, procedure, whether this has any future in the House. Um, and it's unclear whether uh, President Biden will sign it if he makes that makes its way to the White House. President Trump said he would have signed it. Um, uh, but of course, he's from, a, you know, thinking about the kinds of business backgrounds he's in uh, running a golf course. Golf courses claim that uh, Expanding daylight savings a few years ago gave them an extra $200 million. So, you know, if you're running a golf course, having extra daylight for, 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 for playing an extra you know, round or two of golf uh, in the twilight, that, that's advantageous to them. So if you're a candy company or a golf course, uh, all more daylight savings to your advantage. So do you think this bill passes, David? Oh, um, well, I think there's a, you know, given your, your, your comments about public sentiment, I think there actually is a, a fairly strong, and I think the polling suggests this, prompts, uh, uh, public support for this bill passing. Whether it sticks around once it passes, though, is a different question. Um, because I think the example from 1973, I think, suggests that the people like the idea of permanent daylight savings time more in theory than when it actually comes into practice. You know, there have been some studies that, you know, whether one of the major selling points in the change in 73 and actually in both of the world wars is this makes things more energy efficient, that there is a, a savings as a consequence of daylight savings time. And the economists who have looked at it said actually the savings are, are negligible and, and actually hard to, to quantify. Uh, and there, and there have been people who've also on the flip side said the costs of daylight savings are pretty substantial. The, the number of, of, of 
heart attacks, it happens in the aftermath of daylight savings, actually increases car accidents, increase. There's other kinds of um, potential health um, downsides to daylight savings time and shifting time. So, and and, and time as a as a tool. <laughs> that, yeah. that measures labor and everything else would still exist. It doesn't actually matter what hour you say it is. Um, so, so, so yeah. I, again, if we're going to do anything, I, I kind of think permanent standard time is time. the answer. But uh, I'm not, I would think I'm permanent not, standard time would be would be all right. Uh, but and have know, the school start later and give people more time off and 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 all kinds of things. Yeah, um, let's give people more time. Yes, time to, to yes, time for people to 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 relax and enjoy the sunset. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Right, I'll say one thing. Joe Biden wears a watch, David. <laughs> you should wear a watch. You're an adult. Okay. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson didn't wear a watch. He would have if they existed in his lifetime. If yeah. pocket watches or wrist watches existed, he definitely would have worn a watch. And he would have told you how great it was. I think he would have had an iPhone and been, a, you know, a, a progress, you know, because he, he has the fancy new clock in his house. He's going to get. He fancy, would have you know. been an early adopter of technology and he would have been insufferable about it. <laughs> to be sure. Right. Time for last drops, Frank. What you got? I want to praise Amtrak, David. This isn't a historic uh, comment so much as, a, as an observation. So I took the train yesterday from Charlottesville, where I was staying in Virginia, up to New York, where I am now. I took the uh, Northeast Regional, so I didn't even take the Acela. I was able to get on in Charlottesville and get off in Penn Station, and it was a thoroughly pleasant experience. I realized that train travel isn't always pleasant in the United States, and that there's a regional dimension of this, that the coverage is better in some regions than other others. I would say, as somebody who splits their time mainly between um, Britain and the United States, that I think train travel is more pleasant in the U.S. than it is in, in the U.K., in part because most of the truly obnoxious people in the United States fly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's often more relaxing, and, and, and it was very nice. And I passed through Wilmington, Delaware, which, of course, is the uh, train stop for uh, Amtrak Joe Biden, the president. And, and it was a very, very um, ple you know, pleasant experience. So, so hats off to Amtrak. And Which how often is, often doesn't get enough. You know, Americans complain about Amtrak, and Americans have this fantasy that the trains are always better in Europe. I think they are better in continental Europe. I wouldn't say they're better in the UK. I think there are more people who use the trains in the UK for daily commuting purposes. I think that's right, and I think the network is better in the UK. But I think that the experience of being on a train in the UK is inferior to the experience of being on a train in the US, although you're more likely to get where you're going more quickly. So you can go from Edinburgh to London in about four, four and a half hours, mm. whereas my trip yesterday, which was further, it must be said, was uh, uh, was sort of six, six and a half hours. Anyway. I'm, I'm a big fan of trains both places. How is the yeah. new Penn Station, by the way? The new Penn Station, it's still Penn Station. Yes, but there's the new... Um, terminal there isn't it, it looks nice yeah the new moynihan terminal amtrak needs to just call it penn station because when you go to order your, you go to buy your ticket online you're buying a ticket to the moynihan hall oh, okay like, you know um yeah. but which i assume is named after daniel patrick yes, it is. I'm, I'm getting, yeah. right uh but you know penn station has had a makeover uh, which it long needed and it's it's not bad 
because they're in the past having spent many hours in Penn Station there were times when it was less pleasant so I'm glad no, to hear no, no. yeah no 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 and in fact if one were to critique the U.S. train experience Penn Station hmm. would be exhibit A as to why you wouldn't want to do it at all I mean there were times when Penn Station was a bit like, uh, yeah, it was, was not a pleasant place. Uh, but but I only passed through it briefly as I detrained yesterday, but it, it was okay. It looks nice. It's bright and shiny now. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing that next time I'm, I'm uh, in my hometown. Yeah. So what's, what's your last drop, David? Uh, well, so yesterday I filled out my, my Scottish census, uh, which was exciting because that was the first time I had the opportunity to do that. I had a good time checking off the the little the online forms and whatnot. Uh, but it reminded me of this article I read a few weeks ago that I want to recommend to people on the US census in Slate. And it's an article entitled, Why the Census Invented Nine Fake People in One House. And uh, the, the premise of the article is that the census is, is tasked with doing a couple of things. Obviously it's tasked with counting the number of people, et cetera, but it's, you know, it's designed to, to provide an accurate count, but it's also designed to protect people's privacy. Um, and part of the problem is that they, uh, you know, release data for, uh, you know, individual blocks of, of, of housing. But if you're on a block where there's only one house, does that mean you're there, they're then releasing the data on everybody who lives in that house? So occasionally they have to invent some fake people and, and subtract some fake people uh, to, to make the, the sort of data they release to city planners and, and, and legislators and whatnot. Um, they introduce some, some fuzz and, and noise into the system so that, that people's privacy doesn't get, get uh, uh, revealed. So it's a fascinating article about how they do that, the ethics of it, and, and the, the math of it. Uh, so um, I recommend that article to people who are interested in, in data and how data gets used. Excellent. And we've done previous episodes on the census. Yes, I'm a great fan. I love the census. Filling out the census yesterday was great fun for me because uh, it's interesting to see how the, the, the Scottish census is different than the U.S. census and whatnot. So I look forward to doing it upon my return. Excellent. Excellent. Right. All right, David. Frank. Cheers. Bye. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.